I would then invite you to turn to the book of Romans for our scripture meditation this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1 together. So this morning we're only going to look at three verses of scripture. We'll take about a half hour uh, before we partake in communion together to consider Romans chapter 1 verses 5 through 7. Um, As we study or continue our study of the book of uh, Paul the Apostle to the Romans, uh, we review just a little bit. It's been two weeks since we looked at Romans 1, 1 through 4. Um, And uh, a a while before that, I did an overview of the book, an introduction to it, to help us kind of gain a footing as we're studying this letter. Uh, in, In the letter, Paul's theological and pastoral purposes pave the way for a missiological appeal. If you remember this from the, the, the beginning, uh, Paul lays out a foundation of what the gospel is, Romans 1 through 8. He then challenges the Roman believers to conform to it, to obey it, to live in unity under it, uh, before calling them as an apostle to the Gentiles to help him as he desires to reach Spain. That's the missiological or the mission purpose. Uh, that stands behind the whole letter. And so um, we started in the introduction uh, just a few weeks ago, and we noticed that Paul has a lot to say about the writer and a little bit about the recipients in verses 1 through 7. Uh, far more about the writer, uh, perhaps because he had never been to the church before and he was introducing himself, describing the nature of his own identity Uh, the gospel that he preached, and his calling. Um, Concerning his identity, you remember how he starts, Paul, uh, then he describes whose he was, servant of Jesus Christ. And we challenge you from the introduction, his identity and the gospel that he preached uh, to, to also live in such a way that God would be honored Christ would be honored in your life. Uh, We're going to get more of that here today in verses 5 through 7. We're not quite done with what Paul has to say about uh, his calling or himself. And we'll see that in verses 5 and 6 before we look at a brief description of the recipients of Roman believers. Um, I think Paul starts in verse 5 by unfolding a few things about his calling. He starts with describing the nature of his calling uh, at the beginning of verse 5. So look there. It says, through whom, that's through Jesus Christ our Lord, we just read about in verse 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So Paul's going to tell us a little little bit more about his apostolic calling, and he starts by describing its nature. He says, it's in Jesus Christ, our Lord, or through Jesus Christ, that we received a calling. Now, when Paul says we, we come to perhaps one of the more difficult parts of this little verse, and and that is, uh, who's we? Is it Paul and the Romans? And, And if you keep reading, you find out it's not Paul and the Romans. He's got himself and the other apostles in mind. So he's talking about himself and the other apostles, and we can see this clearly when we consider the words grace and apostleship, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And 
these two words, grace and apostleship, might be two separate things. It could be that he's saying, uh, as apostles, we receive something like salvation grace, and then in addition to that, we've received uh, apostleship later. But it seems likely that Paul's expressing the same concept, one concept, with the two nouns. In this case, you could translate it something like, through whom, Jesus, we have received the grace of apostleship, or the special gift of being an apostle. It's an unmerited gift from Jesus to him and the other apostles. That's the nature of his calling, but we keep going. We looked at the middle of verse 5, and he, des- he describes the purpose of that apostolic calling in the very next phrase. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith. And so uh, this important statement, I think, gives the purpose of Paul's calling. Um, if you were to ask Paul why uh, God put a call on his life, or why Jesus put a call on Paul's life, it would be for the obedience of faith, or to produce this, the obedience of faith. This is Christ's immediate purpose for Paul's apostleship. And I think it's worth digging into this phrase a little bit to try to understand it. What is the obedience of faith? There are different ways that you could take this. It might be that Paul is called by Jesus to be an apostle, to demonstrate or to uh, produce obedience to the faith, the Christian faith, the whole body of beliefs that make up Christianity. That could be it. It might be that he's describing the obedience that comes from faith or the obedience which consists of faith. I, I think it's most likely here that Paul reveals that Jesus has called him to apostleship to bring about the obedience that only genuine faith will produce. As, as people genuinely believe and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, obedience will be produced. Having said this, one might wonder with this little phrase at the beginning, I know today, hey, we just jumped right into it, didn't we? That's because I don't have a lot of time. Okay. We look at this phrase for the obedience of faith. You might wonder how important that phrase is. And I, I think that's a good question, uh, but I think uh, it's important to know how Paul uses it in other places. This phrase, the obedience of faith, is only used in one other place in all the Bible. And it's used in the same book. If you were to turn to the last chapter of the book of Romans, Romans 16 uh, and verse 22, near the end of this uh, book, Paul will use the same exact expression. There in Romans 16, 26, Paul prays for God to strengthen the Roman believers in accordance to the revelation that has now been revealed, and then here's your phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith. And so if someone were to ask me, how important is this little phrase, the obedience of faith? It seems to be very important because Paul starts and ends Romans with it. It's on his mind when he's writing the letter. This is a significant purpose for why God even called, Jesus even called him to serve as an apostle. To go about, uh, by God's grace and enablement, securing the obedience that only comes through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we were to ask Paul why, why did Jesus call you to serve him? His important answer is for the purpose of bringing about 
obedience that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now we've gone kind of quickly so far, but we're going to slow down on this next point. That leads us to, still in verse 5, the next phrase, for the sake of his name. Okay, and I I want that phrase to be kind of like ingrained in our conscience this morning. I want us to leave here this morning thinking about that phrase, what it means and its significance for us. Okay, so in the middle of verse 5, for the sake of his name, I think reveals the focus of Paul's calling. Paul ministers for the sake of Jesus' name. That is the cause for which he had been called. So, question to Paul the Apostle. Why did Paul desire to bring people to the obedience of faith? Answer, for the fame of Jesus. Everything is leading to this for Paul, and the whole sentence leads to this as well. As a matter of fact, in the original, the very last words of verse 5 are for the sake of his name. Okay, So everything is moving that way. This is the ultimate focus of the verse. It's the ultimate focus of Paul's call to be an apostleship. Uh, this end or this goal is the most important thing for Paul and his call as an apostle. Since he was Jesus's, right, servant of Jesus Christ, he lives for Jesus's name. Okay, and we're going to talk about this in about, you know, 17 different ways so that it really comes home to us. We're going to look at what the scripture says about this idea, and then we're going to make application for us as we consider it as well. He's underlying the ultimate or chief goal, not only of his apostleship, but of all human beings. Okay. Uh, from time to time, I go around and you see different signs that are pretty moving. Uh, there's a, one church that um, has a sign for Chesapeake. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Or maybe there's one for Virginia Beach. I remember not too long ago on one of the fences around here that there was that sign for Virginia Beach. And those are noble and good purposes and goals. But... If we, were to, if we were to capture the most significant thing for Paul the Apostle, it would be for Jesus' name, period. For Jesus' name. And that's also why we exist. And so as we look at this, we, we start this way. We, we need to first understand something. We need to understand that every human being acts for an end. We all have goals, and we all even have an ultimate goal. might not be easy for us to get to what the goal of others is, or even the goal of our own heart, but we all have a chief or ultimate goal in life that guides and controls our behavior. So if I were to go up to you today and you were a teacher, and I ask you, why? Why are you doing this? Now, imagine a teacher, perhaps nearing retirement, who could retire at any time. And I, I go to the teacher, like, why do you keep going? Why do you keep doing this? Well, if my questions were penetrating enough and the answer is truthful enough, the teacher might say something like, for acceptance. 
or four young people, four souls, four meaning and purpose. If you were to ask a pastor, why? Why do you do this? Why do you keep doing this? What is your goal? You might hear, if that pastor were honest, he might say, for respect. For self-glory. For people. Or for spiritual impact on others. That's why I'm doing it. If I, if I were to go up to a young basketball player in the room today and I ask, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting in so much time? Why are you working so hard before the game, after the game? Why are you doing all this? You might hear these answers. If there's honesty, you might hear for fame, for respect, for acceptance, for glory. Maybe we'd hear for money. Or for the joy it brings to others. In all cases, however, there are reasons and ends and goals, and there is even an ultimate goal. Every human being is driven by some purpose. What distinguishes us from other people is the goal for which we strive and or the degree of commitment and effectiveness that we have in reaching that goal. Now the ultimate goal for Paul's ministry was for the sake of his name and his degree of commitment and effectiveness in reaching that goal, men and women, is worthy of emulation. We should not only emulate the goal, we, can, we should consider how he went about doing it. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into the importance of the subject, the importance of the fame of God's name in the scriptures. Okay, and we'll just do a brief overview and I'll point out a few things to you about this from scripture, okay? First, in scripture, the name of God is truly significant. You don't have to read far in the Pentateuch at all and you start coming across the Hebrew word for name, the name, the name of Yahweh, and how they were to respect and adhere to it. In the books of Leviticus and Numbers, for instance, we learn that God takes it very seriously when someone swears falsely by his name or profanes his name. In Leviticus chapter 24, God says that Uh, that the law of Moses required someone to be stoned if they blasphemed the name. The name. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, God's name was to be hallowed hallowed and protected. But I'm just making it very briefly. And again, you could do this on your own. You could study the Old Testament. His name was significant. As a matter of fact, it becomes clear in scripture as you study that God's glory is the chief goal or end of all creation. Many of you have memorized the words of the Westminster Confession. What is the chief purpose of man? And and you'd be able to answer this with me. The, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, this is the ultimate why question. Why should anything exist at all in this world? And uh, we have stronger proof than the Westminster Confession 
that everything was created, made for the purpose of glorifying God's name. We have scripture. Okay? And so just to review a few of these with you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think of 1 Peter 4 uh, and verse 11. It says, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think as well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where Paul's unfolding God's response to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Uh, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Jesus existed. This is why he came, the Son came into the world in human flesh so that every tongue and every person might glorify the name of his Father. And so this is the chief end of man. But uh, I would make, want to make one more kind of mind-blowing premise with you today before we, we continue. And that is, do you know that this is God's chief end or goal as well? The chief end or purpose of all beings is the glory of God and God himself is committed to this. In other words, if we were able to ask God why, ask God the why question, right? Why did you create this world? The answer would come back, and it's found repeatedly in Scripture, I think over a hundred times. The answer would come back for his own name and glory. That's what the Scriptures declare. On the surface, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? It's mind-blowing, if you think about it. God is committed to his own glory and name. It's mind-blowing. For some people, it can be a little, perhaps, disheartening or something. Confusing. Uh, So I want to try to demonstrate this to you from the Scripture. You shouldn't just believe it because I say it's true. You shouldn't believe it because some theologian says it and said you should ask upon what biblical basis, preacher, do you believe that God's chief end is his own glory? Okay, ready? What do we do? We go to scripture. Okay, first place we go is a very familiar psalm. We listen to the voice of David in the psalms. I've used this psalm over and over again in funerals. I read Psalm 23. I know many of you are very familiar with Psalm 23, and we love it because it reveals God's commitment to his children. However, within the psalm, if you're reading slowly, you see not only God's commitment to his children, to us, we see God's commitment to God. Psalm 23, verse 3. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God does this for the sake of his own name. Psalm 79, verse 9. This is Asaph, the psalm writer. And he says, help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Asaph, in appealing here, I think, understands the chief end or purpose of all beings, including God himself, as the name's sake of God. I think of Samuel in his farewell address. You know, the very important Old Testament figure, Samuel, and I could take a, a good portion of this address with you. We could read over it and look at it, but I'll just, we'll use 1 Samuel 12 and verse 22. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. So why won't? God forsake his people? What stands behind it? What's an ultimate purpose for God in honoring that promise? His own great name's sake. Okay? We could go to other places too for sake of time. I won't go to Numbers 14, but you might remember there where Moses appeals for God not to wipe out all the disobedient Israelites. Don't wipe them out and start over. And the way he appeals, remember how he appeals? What will the Canaanite, Canaanites say about your name? What will they say about you? They'll say you're a God who couldn't do it. So deliver Israel for the sake of your name. You go all throughout scripture and see this again and again. Okay, So God is chiefly committed to his own glory. But then we ask this question, right? How could it be right or loving for God to make his name so important? And I really wrestled with this. I've wrestled with this question quite a lot, to be honest with you. So we're all going to wrestle with it for just a few minutes. How could it be right or loving for God to make his own name the chief end or goal of the world, including himself? This past week, my wife and I learned of a young woman who we love we know from a different state, have known in previous times, who is now rejecting God. She's been a close friend of our families, but now she questions the existence and the character of God. She wonders how God could punish innocent men and women and children and be so concerned for his own glory. And so the answer I'll give you here is something that I, I would hope that I could give to her. As well. The first thing our friend needs to know is that human beings have no rights or claims over against God. Foundationally, our friend, whom we love, her view of two things is off her view of God and her view of human sin. God is absolutely sovereign. He is the true and deserving king of all created beings and of all created things. And as sovereign, God is infinite in his holiness and perfections. There's no end to God's perfections. That is, God is infinitely beautiful in all his perfections. As a matter of fact, believers will experience fuller and fuller enjoyment and discovery of God's infinite perfections in heaven. 
it's my opinion in study of scripture, that we'll never come to an end of our discovery of the infinite ways that God is holy and perfect in heaven. So all condemnation that comes from a God like that, who is infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, all condemnation that comes from him is just. If you don't get that, then you don't get God. You need to go back to scripture and you need to study what it says about his absolute perfections. The other thing you don't get is sin. Good thing Paul wrote Romans 1 through 3. That's what these chapters are going to be about over and over again, right? We're going to see in these chapters, the first three chapters of Romans, uh, that there is no innocent man, woman, boy, girl, or baby. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. All are under sin. So my friend needs to know that human beings have no rights or claims over against the infinite, perfect God. But second, our friend also needs to know that God being for God is right and loving. If God knows that the chief end of all things is his own glory, then it would be wrong, dubious, or fraudulent for him not to pursue the same thing, the highest and most worthy good. If this is the right goal for all things, then it would be wrong for God to pursue anything else as his chief goal. You see, God, no less than human beings, is under a kind of ethical constraint to take into account the inherent worth of every entity, including himself. And after evaluation, then the heaviest, weightiest, noblest end is his own infinitely perfect and holy self. You see, God must have high regard for that which is most worthy <laughs> for him to be right, right? God must have high, highest regard for that which is most worthy to be right. In other words, God must be God-centered to be God. This past week, our governmental leaders evaluated the significance of possible harm to human life or aquatic life and made a decision over the coast of South Carolina. We shot down a Chinese surveillance balloon over water because we thought it was better to possibly harm fish than humans. That was our assessment of worth. And that's the assessment of any sane person, by the way, as well. It's not wrong for God to pursue his own name when compared to all the lesser goals around. As a matter of fact, it's a necessary commitment of all things and all beings. 
But then secondly, I would add this. If God knows that the only way for someone to be delivered from their sins is through his name, then it is loving for him to make much of it. Another way of saying this, if God knows that the only way for someone to be delivered from their sins is through his name, it would be unloving for him not to pursue it and inflate it. God must be God-centered to be loving. God making much out of himself and desiring the best for us, for human beings, is the same thing because the best only comes to us through his name. We are only saved through his name. So God, promote it, plug it, advocate for it, pursue it. It is the highest goal and men and women will only be saved. Through your name. That's the chief purpose of all beings and of all things. And it is the ultimate goal of Paul's apostleship. He says for the sake of his name. And so men and women, I know this has been deep. I know you're like, man, what in the world? We're still in that one phrase? Okay, but I only get like one chance at this phrase. Okay, in Romans. This is so important. I I wish I could have preached it better. The, the, the higher the subject, the worse my preaching always gets. I don't know why that is. I get so frustrated with myself. Okay. This is so important. Some of you have never heard this before. Maybe you're a new believer. You never heard that the chief end or goal of all things is God. It's even the chief end or goal of himself. Why he created things. You need to know this. Some of you have heard this. You've heard this in multiple ways. In fact, you need to live this way. Might I use the stirring words of two theologians and their views on this passage to implore us all to consider the importance of for the sake of his name. Okay, I'll read these to you. First, John Stott. Love John Stott on most of Romans. John Stott said, We should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name. Troubled when it remains unknown. Hurt. When it, the name of God, is ignored. Indignant when it's blasphemed. And all the time anxious and determined that it should be given the honor and the glory which are due it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God in verse 18 and beyond, Stott says. But the highest missionary purpose rather is zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of who? Jesus Christ. That's Stott on this passage in Romans. Right? For the sake of his name is what drives us to mission. John Piper, of course, some of you know I'd quote this because it's the first part of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper, when considering these subjects, says, missions is not the ultimate goal the church worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, 
and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Men and women, God's vision and chief end for all things is his own name. And if we do not join God in advancing this aim for the universe, then frankly, frankly, we waste our lives. And we oppose our creator. Paul's aim was for the sake of Jesus' name. That was his focus. Since his identity was Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, his aim was to make much out of Jesus' name. What's your focus? What's your goal? What's your why? why? Why are you doing it? Why are you living that way? Why are you pursuing that? For the sake of his name. Now, unfortunately, I used up all my time in the sermon. I'll just point out a few things for you before we close. Verses 5 and 6, he continues with the range of his calling. God's given him this mission among all the nations, including uh, you, Roman believers, who are called to, to belong to Jesus Christ. Just like God put a call on Paul's life, he's servant of Jesus Christ, he recognizes that God has done the same with the Roman believers. They're called to belong to Jesus too. And so the range of Paul's calling is all the nations, and that includes you Romans. And that'll be important as he makes strong appeals to them as apostle to the Gentiles to be unified and then to help him reach Spain. They must obey that because God's put a call on Paul's life over the Gentiles, including the Romans. But then in verse 7, he uh, then describes the Roman believers a little bit more. He says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And uh, perhaps we'll have to say some things about this next week or so. Um, he calls these Roman believers, those whom God has loved and called. And then he, he gives this final greeting, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just kind of read over that statement and we don't think about its significance very much. Especially the word are. 20 years before this, there would be no way the Apostle Paul would have ever called Gentile people loved and called by God. He would have a much different perspective of them. They were perhaps fuel for the fires of God. They were rightly deserving his condemnation and great wrath because of their immorality and idolatry and wickedness. But something changed Paul's perspective. And that something is the gospel. God changed him so that now he's writing to mainly Gentile believers and he, he's able to refer to the Father. As our Father. You're the ones loved and called by God. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father. And from our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you now to bow your heads in prayer. And begin to evaluate your heart. 
as we prepare for the Lord's table. We'll just take a few moments to do that now, and I want you to consider maybe a few questions from Romans during that time. Would it be good for you to ask yourself the question, whose am I? Whose am I? My servant of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, you could ask the question, am I really living for the sake of his name? I think we need to spend some time really thinking about those questions. Whose am I? And am I really living for the sake of his name?